Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Vikram from Quantlayer, and thanks for listening to our podcast. So serverless has caused a massive shift in approaches to application design. On this episode, we explore what serverless gives teams and the trade-offs involved in going that route. We cover players like Amazon AWS, Google GCP, and Microsoft Azure, and also talk about what else is in store for the space. Before we get into the episode, a word from our sponsor, us. Quantlayer is a software consultancy. We build software applications for our clients, help teams with new product development, and work with them on tech strategy. We love working on all industry verticals while specializing in helping teams with complex problems and bringing their solutions to life. So think real-time features, complex and interactive UIs, parallelism like data aggregation and pipelining, search and indexing and alerting. If any of these more ambitious features sound interesting to you, we would love to chat with you. Drop me a line at vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Mary, at quantlayer.com. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hey, everyone. You've got Quantlayer here. Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as The Wizard. What's going on, Fizan? Uh, not much. Uh, first podcast of the new year. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while since we recorded, actually. Just basically took a winter break. Yeah. So there's been a ton of interest on the serverless side. And I think we've highlighted a lot of that with some of our older episodes around Cloudflare, Fastly, and other kind of software providers for cloud offerings. And so we'll get into uh, how serverless is defined in a bit, but it is a growing interest area among developers, technical teams, larger organizations that are starting to kind of break out their application workflows. And of course, we all know about Amazon's total market dominance in the space in the prior few years from their you know, general cloud offerings to their now their function as a service or Lambda offerings. So what's also interesting is that a lot of other large companies are throwing their hat in the ring. So, you know, Microsoft, Azure, Google's GCP, Alibaba, and even IBM have offerings now that are that are used. Yeah. And as far as the function as a service goes, we're even seeing some of the other uh, providers that we had talked about offering some sort of a code execution in addition to their like CDN and other options. And so we've also been seeing that Azure has been taking a lot more market share over the past year or so. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So we'll get into all that stuff in this this episode. So first off, let's just kind of define serverless. So Werner Vogels, he's CTO of AWS. This is the way he kind of defines it. Before, your servers were like pets. If they became ill, you had to nurture them back to health. Then with the cloud, they were cattle. So you put them out to pasture and you got yourself a new one. In serverless, there are no cattle, only your application. You don't even have to think about nurturing back to health or getting new ones. All the execution is taken care of. 
So some of the benefits that, I guess, first let's kind of get into like monolith versus microservices versus uh, serverless, because that seems to be kind of like the evolution of how this particular trend has played out. So, Yeah, you, you almost needed microservices to be there before serverless could and become popular. you mean that in terms of um, people understanding why serverless is needed or some other kind of reason? So, you know, with Monolith, you have this idea of your app as a single entity. Maybe there's two or three services that make up your app, but essentially it's one large code base and maybe an auxiliary service or two that's deployed on a single server or the same version of that thing is deployed on multiple servers for some level of redundancy. And that doesn't really lend itself to anything that would resemble uh, modern serverless. Then you have this idea of microservices where rather than having an app that sort of does everything, you extract everything out into much smaller um, pieces of functionality. And they're essentially a number of small self-contained applications that have an interface for communicating with each other that achieve the same function that the monolith did, but from a deployment perspective, it's a lot of small applications with an interface that's exposed. And I think that was a prerequisite for serverless because serverless takes that to another extreme. So with the microservices, you started to see the popularization of uh, stuff like containerization. So you would make a lot of these small things, but now you have to deploy like 10, 20 small services instead of one app. So you start needing some way of like, packaging and, uh, uh, you know, deploying that in an automated fashion. So you have the pop, you know, the rise of things like Docker and then uh, orchestration for stuff like that with Kubernetes. And so you've gotten to these small chunks that are essentially small applications. And then serverless takes that to the next level where you don't even think of it as small applications. You right. think of it as just just run this function. So the monolith to serverless would have been too big a jump, but the monolith to microservices began down the road of breaking things into smaller pieces and treating it more as uh, interfaces. And then, you know, serverless gets it down to singular functions. Yep. So some of the benefits of this, of course, uh, we'll get into all these and then we'll talk about trade-offs too, but um, and then what types of applications are best suited for serverless versus what are not in a bit. But some of the basic benefits that, you know, right off the top of my head, so you don't have to pay for uh, servers that aren't doing anything. There's, of course, server maintenance, uptime resource management you don't have to worry about. Uh, server security updates, which are increasingly more and more important, um, you don't have to worry about those as well. But there's also a flip side, I guess, you know, you, you are relying on the service provider to be taking care of all this stuff as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then finally, you can scale your servers based on usage, so up or down, depending on, you know, what's going on on your particular uh, application at the moment. Yeah, and I would, I would say even that... That's all. That's automatic. Uh, you're not actually having to worry about that. Uh, reading meaning, like in the instance of Amazon, they uh, it just auto scales, right? So there's there. You don't even have the concept of like you're not doing anything. Every time a function is called, it just provisions a new instance of the Lambda for you. So there's no configuration required unless you want to exceed the provided limits. So there are some like sane limits put in place, but shy of that, there's really nothing that needs to be done. 
So go into in-depth into some of these benefits. We just talked about this kind of scaling, but server management not needed. So what is kind of like the old paradigm in this in the serverless paradigm? Yeah. So let me talk about it in the in the context of monolith and then like more of a containerized microservices and then serverless. So, you know, with your monolith, it was a most probably some version of Linux. And then you set up your firewall and then you set up whatever other stuff you need on that, you know, install onto that system to run your application. And you have to monitor disk usage, memory usage. You have to, you know, every 18 months or whatever timeline you're on, you need to upgrade the uh, version of the operating system that might create issues with all the other dependencies. So it's really a system that, that needs to be managed. And if you have it, you know, a relatively large deployment where you have multiple servers, you have to figure out how to do that in an iterative manner. It's a whole complicated yep. workflow. With microservices, and most likely, you know, the idea of using containers, you could do all of that within the context of the container and just push up a new container. So your actual instance, you don't need to worry about configuring and upgrading and whatever. You just use what Amazon or your provider gives you out of the box, and you just push a new container up. And, you know, everything is handled within the context of the container, but you still largely have to worry about a lot of the same things. With serverless, you're just provided that execution environment. So you really just need to worry about the function you're writing. And like you mentioned, the security updates, uh, OS updates, whatever, are just taken care of as long as your version of Node or Python or whatever language you're using yep. is supported, it's going to run. And uh, quick thoughts here about kind of size of these Lambda functions. I know that each of these services actually have like physical limit in terms of how large these functions can get. But presumably if you want to kind of, you know, divide and conquer your app by different functions and concepts, I guess, you want to keep these functions pretty small. Yeah, the best way to think of it is uh so if we're thinking in the context of web, a function would be there to serve a single web request. That would be a, a good analogy. Or in the situation of a background job, you'd use it to process a single task. So, you know, the, the code for the functions, I think the limits vary depending on the provider, but around 50 megabytes compressed is about how large the code can be. So you can put a relatively large function in there, but the intention is for it to do a single task. And then uh, there's also um, the other learning factor is uh, memory usage. So you essentially pay based on how much memory you're using and how long the function runs. And there are caps on how much memory a function can consume and how long it can run. It's generally five to 10 minutes and a couple gigs of memory. So the idea is really in the way that you would be worried about how much memory you're using for a single background job or for a single uh, web request, you do have that same concern. So as long as you think of it within those contexts, it maps over pretty well to these uh, serverless functions. So one of the other uh, benefits that we had listed was uh, it's kind of like no idle capacity. And I guess the old paradigm versus serverless paradigm is in the old paradigm, you might have old, ser uh, not to say old service, but just other servers that are just kind of sitting there and not doing anything in the moment if your uh, server isn't busy, for example. Yeah. So essentially, if we're using web or even... Uh, some sort of event, any sort of event-driven background job, pro like job processing, where you're not in control of the incoming events, but you have to process them on demand. In that paradigm, you essentially had to provision and pay for servers around your peak capacity 
or some reasonably large fraction of your peak capacity and then auto scale. So either, you know, let's say in a 24 hour cycle, I have like a news site that for two hours a day gets a thousand requests per second. And then the other 22 hours, it gets like a hundred requests per second. I have to essentially either pay 24 hours for that thousand requests a second workload and probably some multiple of it to have a safe margin of error. Or the safe thing might be to pay for a 500 requests per second type workload. And then around that, you know, the two hour window, I uh, auto scale up and then auto scale down. So that introduces either a fixed cost for unused resources or an element of like deployment complexity if you're trying to manage costs and uh, set up your auto scaling. Or as a serverless, you just pay for the requests as they come in and the, the Lambda is provisioned on demand. The other benefit we listed was this kind of like automated high availability, but I think we pretty much covered that. Automation and parallelization. So these are pretty interesting. And I think we'll talk a little more about these later with respect to like the right type of applications to build on serverless and the types that are not. So let's let's come back to that in a second. So let's talk, I guess, a little bit on the development, the actual development on serverless. How might teams work on serverless applications versus traditional applications? What are some kind of like differences and similarities? Yeah, so there's a, I would say there's a, this is where there's the most dramatic difference in the needs in terms of like the skill set of your team and how it's distributed. So in a modern (laughs) traditional setup, you may have developers that are largely unaware of most of the like deployment side of things. They're either working purely on front end, purely on back end. They are somewhat full or they're somewhat full stack, but they don't, they essentially get stuff working locally, use someone else's setup to deploy to a staging environment, test everything out, maybe know how to change some config, and that's the extent of it. And that's that's pretty common on large teams. You'll have someone that knows their the code side of things very well, and then you'll either have developers or full-time DevOps people that are responsible for building the workflow of going from code to your whatever, like, test environment, you have your CI, CD pipeline and to actual deployment. And that would be a whole skill set. And that, that group may not actually be that familiar with the code. And then obviously the, the lines are very blurred in terms of some teams, you know, a small team may have everyone that's able to do the entire workflow. And then, you know, we've seen on larger teams where the roles become very specialized. With a serverless architecture, your back end is very, very, very tightly coupled to your like cloud architecture. And as far as I can tell, there's no way around decoupling development from understanding your uh, cloud architecture. So what that does is that's going to create a ton of overhead for your backend developers in terms of understanding serverless, which can be a problem. But on the flip side, if you're an organization without deep like DevOps skill sets, or you don't have the budget to spend that, it may be easier to just learn, you know, serverless and not have to worry about uh, DevOps for certain types of applications. Yep. Okay. So here's another comment from AWS CTO. The advantages of serverless are obvious. There is nothing to provision. It scales automatically. It's highly available and secure. And most importantly, you have to pay for what you use. So I think we can get a little more into kind of like the 
business benefits of serverless. So we've talked a little bit on the on the technical side. And now we can talk about like some of the uh, why serverless would make you know some business teams happy. So first one's overall cost reduction. And again, this is totally going to depend on the type of application you have, but overall cost reduction. So there's an infrastructure cost reduction because, like we said, we're not paying for idle compute power. Your operational costs go down since you're not worrying about server management issues. So things like provisioning, security, the stuff that you talked to Fizon earlier, you know, configuration, making machine images and so on. And then, of course, like personnel and resource allocation. So if you don't need the personnel to manage kind of like the back end, those engineering resources can be pointed elsewhere. Yeah. And I would make a, a point here that in like traditional DevOps, as your application scales, your complexity is going to scale. And so the demands and the type of personnel you need and the costs are going to like keep scaling. Like when you go from 10 servers to 100 to 1,000, it's a whole different ballgame in terms of how you deploy, how you manage reliability, this type of skill set you uh, DevOps need, this type of automation you need to build. Whereas with serverless, largely that's not going to be the case. So you're also, contr- you're, um, it's not just a direct reduction of costs. I would say that you're uh, changing the way your costs scale as your uh, load scales for, on the DevOps side. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So I guess that the next thing is kind of shorter time to market. And I can, you know, again, this each of these points are arguable, but there are particular sets of applications that these apply to. So shorter time to market. Uh, if you're not worrying, again, if you're not worrying about infrastructure, it opens up a lot of things. So we talked a little bit on the cost side, but it also means that you have more time that can be dedicated towards uh, product planning, design, feature development. You can prototype features you want to test very quickly. So, you know, if you're running a serverless environment and you want to add a particular feature, you can test that feature and then just kind of roll it into your uh, staging and then production platform very quickly, very easily. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Um, we've espoused uh, a lot of times the like leverage you get from Elixir and being able to both build quickly and scale. And you can make the case that once you get past the initial learning curve, you do get a lot of the similar benefits from uh, serverless. So there's a few that, uh, you know, in the course of uh, learning more and more about serverless, there's a few other benefits that I've seen listed. And I'm not sure I, sure I totally understand which I thought we could like talk about them. Uh, the first one, serverless makes your apps more stable and fault tolerant. I'm not totally sure what I think that means. My thought there is that's probably true in many cases. You're largely essentially offloading the... Basically, your app is going to be as reliable as the AWS services you use, assuming that there's no third-party dependencies. So in most cases, you probably do become more stable and fault-tolerant by offloading that responsibility to the cloud provider, unless you have some crazy setup where you can build to a higher level of reliability. As far as the fault-tolerant thing, yes, uh, definitely, because architecturally, you're essentially moving to more of a... like. You know, I wouldn't say quite the actor model, but you're moving to more of like a, a process-based setup where everything is encapsulated in a single process, which if it dies, uh, doesn't matter. The like Erlang let it crash philosophy, like each Lambda, you know, is its own process that can die and not take anything down with it. And so you do get fault tolerance in that sense. Yep. 
this next one. So since serverless is all about functions, it allows you to develop independent components that can get reused in similar products. Uh, what are your thoughts on that guy? My, th- I'm always distrustful of anything that speaks to reuse. I think just in yeah. my experience, reuse uh, is a tremendously difficult problem to actually get right. And so, like, I think the number of situations where you just luck into something being very reusable is small. But I think you do get benefits in that everything is going to be so atomic that maybe there there is more reusability because there's going to be more atomicity to, like, the way your code is structured. But I'm just generally skeptical of, like, lucking into code reuse. Yep. Serverless makes your apps more flexible. Should you need to change any feature, you'll refactor it by tackling its specific function, and that's it. Well, that depends. Right? Totally like, depends. Does your function talk to another function that relies? Like that's more to do with like an architectural type it, of question. It's a, this is a game of interfaces. Like ultimately, this is a form of a microservices architecture. So I'm assuming that most of these functions are talking to other functions, and then it's just. Like, how have you defined your interfaces? So it just really depends on what you're building and what your interfaces are like. Yep. Okay, so we've covered kind of like everything, a lot of the benefits of serverless. So let's talk about the drawbacks. So the first one, these are not in any particular order, but the first one is, of course, vendor lock-in. So when you're doing serverless, you're relying on on a third party like AWS, Azure, GCP, you're totally locked into that platform. And if you want to move to another, you know, what are some of the things that are involved there? We we actually had faced this in a in a production application. Yeah. So the one thing with uh, the previous paradigm of containerization was that if you built everything to work inside of like a Docker container, you could it was relatively straightforward to do a multi-cloud setup. With serverless you're really committing to a specific cloud provider. There are tools out there like serverless.com and then um, even using some combination of like uh, Terraform and some of your own scripts that you can still do multi-cloud. But the reality is a lot of the serverless APIs, like there's the function execution, but then there's all the other stuff that's provided, like the data stores, the ML stuff, the stuff to build all sorts, you know, like uh, pipelines that are very platform specific. So if you're doing anything beyond using the basic function as a service, you are tied into a specific vendor and there's not a good way around that. Yep. You give up some control over your total application and you're limited to what the cloud provider offers. Yeah, and this goes back to uh, A, what services they provide, but also, you know, we had talked about there's the five to 10 minute execution limits. There's the memory limits. There's the code size limits. Um, a lot of the cloud providers limit how many concurrent functions you have. So there are uh, some scaling limits. So if any of those things don't work for you, like you're kind of, this this is not a good deal. And similarly, you're reliant on security and disaster recovery measures by your service provider. So, you know, of course, this can be, you know, private user data, database information, and so on. Yeah. And this is an interesting one because, again, you're, you know, even with like microservices, you could largely mimic the same setup on a different provider or have a backup environment. Um, with serverless, like let's say AWS Lambda goes down, there's no easy way to like spin up an alternative unless you've actually from the outset like mimicked the whole architecture with another cloud provider, which is not going to be identical. It's going to be like building another application. So this is an interesting one. Yep. 
Um, cost can be unpredictable if you aren't paying attention. So this is just like a, you can't just let it like run. You can't just like set a budget and then let, let it run. I mean, you could, it could hit that budget very quickly. So it's just something that you have to watch while you're doing this. Yeah, it's not like you're provisioning servers or even with auto scaling, you tend to set like a cap so you know what your maximum cost can be. Here, that maximum can be very, very high. Yep. New mode of architecting applications and like learning curve. So I think you had talked a little bit about this one before with respect to like the backend team. So the word paradigm gets thrown out a lot in tech, but if you're comparing monolithic application architecture and serverless application architecture, they are very different. So there is a learning curve involved. Yeah, it's, and it's dramatic because the entire way your backend application, even if you're working with like the same language, like let's say you work in Node, the way your whole application is structured is going to be completely different. Um, your interfaces will look different. The way you uh, have your like test environment is different because the way you can run things locally changes. So it, it is a whole different way of doing backend development particularly. Um, and I, th- I thought this one is kind of funny and probably not thought about, uh, I'm sure it's thought about uh, plenty, but when you're first getting into it, it's kind of a, a new concept. So they function execution duration and cold start. So uh, often these lambdas, when you call them, there's like a boot up period and it goes into the next related point around response time. So, you know, our, tr- our experience in like some traditional responses, they're simply uh, much faster in a simple like traditional server setup, order of magnitudes faster compared to a Lambda response. So again, I think this points to this, Lambdas are great, but they need to be tailored towards particular applications. You just can't, you're not going to throw a web server on there and have it perform like uh, incredibly well compared to say like a Phoenix app. Yeah, exactly. Like our expectation when we spin up a Phoenix app is for API responses to be in the order. If it's just pure Elixir, it should be in the order of a few milliseconds at most. And then you add to that a little bit of overhead for data fetching or whatnot. Yep. Whereas I think the experience with like Lambdas has been um, a few hundred milliseconds minimum. And so if your like response budget is like two or 300 milliseconds for API responses, like you're trying to build something with very fast responses, you are going to run into some limitations here. And so that's worth considering if like blazing performance is important on like the response time side. Right. Uh, so the tooling across service providers is really different. So AWS offers the most overarching tools for developers, but again, you might be limited in terms of customizability. But then GCP has their cloud functions, Azure has their cloud functions. But if you start getting kind of um, like more custom and specific territory, each service provider offers something very different. So uh, again, I think this points to kind of learning curve and knowing exactly like which service to sign up for, for your particular need. Yeah. When we first started working with serverless, it was what, late 2017, early 2018. And it was a pain in the ass. Uh, You had to do stuff primarily through console. That was realistically the easiest way to do it. And it was very hard to test stuff. It was very hard to integrate stuff with existing applications. The whole process was a pain in the ass. Since then, tooling has improved so that serverless can be part of a normal development workflow. AWS has their uh, SAM. And then um, you know the other providers are doing their own stuff. And then there's some third-party companies like serverless that's doing stuff. But it is still very early days in terms of tooling. Um, there's simple stuff that every now and then I look for, like, how do I do this? And you find that it's not available. I think we ran into this with uh, 
oh, I want an easy way to integrate front-end deployments into my back-end deployments, and it wasn't like yep. what we wanted. So there's there's definitely it's definitely a maturity issue in terms of uh, workflow yep. and tooling. And I guess uh, team architecture. What are your what are your thoughts there? Yeah, and I had mentioned this briefly, where you know, <laughs> modern traditional with dev, DevOps, sysadmin, each sort of having very discrete things that they need a, a depth of skill in. And so if you have an existing team that has these roles with these different depths of skill, when you move towards serverless, the idea is really that your backend developers absorb all the, the responsibilities of uh, DevOps and sysadmin for the portions of the code base yeah. that are being done serverless, like in most cases. Obviously, you're not going to be pure serverless. But in a situation where that you are pure serverless, essentially, you're just going to have backend devs that replace like all of the DevOps piece. And so you have a situation where either your backend devs need to upskill and really understand this new way of working, or your DevOps people need to, eat, to migrate to doing more code. There's, a, uh, there's definitely a bit of a, you know, there's going to be some friction here. Yep. All right, so we talked about what serverless is. We've talked about benefits, drawbacks, all those trade-offs. So knowing all these things, let's talk about like what applications are suited for serverless. Yeah, so a good one is uh, multimedia processing. And the reason for that is, like, let's say you have to do something that loads an image, does some sort of manipulation on it, or even just inspects it. Any sort of multimedia processing eats CPU and memory. And so if you get a burst of like a, you know, a lot of incoming images or something you need to process, or even you're doing like content moderation, that's the sort of thing where with the traditional server model, you'd have to worry about scaling. You'd have to worry about too much memory usage or CPU usage on a given instance because like too much stuff is happening concurrently. The nice thing with like these multimedia processing workloads is as long as it doesn't overwhelm like a single image or single job doesn't overwhelm a single Lambda, you can do as many of them concurrently as you want. And this comes back to, we had talked about like, I think parallelism and stuff previously. Another one, I think a very uh, powerful use case is mobile backend. So, you know, back in the day there, I forgot what it was called, but you had these like backend as a service uh, type solutions for teams that were primarily mobile teams that didn't want to Mm -hmm. worry about backend, not because like the API was complicated, but because DevOps was complicated. Your average mobile or front-end developer didn't want to deal with backend DevOps, but they still wanted to be able to define an API. And I think serverless provides, like really solves that problem really well. You can define specifically the fun if you just want to define some functions and have it connected to a data store and maybe auth without having to do any DevOps, this is a great scenario for a mobile backend. And then, you know, we talked about multimedia processing, but any sort of a bursty workload. So, you know, back in the day, Amazon, I don't know if they still have it, actually, because I haven't looked in a while, but they had spot instances. Essentially, the pricing varied based on time of day. And so if you had a work that you knew that needed to be done, but you didn't care when it was done, you could do it at the cheapest hours. And so that worked reasonably well for loads where you had an option of when to schedule it. But if you have on-demand processing that needs to be happening, whether it's uh, because of like user inputs from web, or you have some uh, like event-based workloads, like someone's uploading images, and you need to do immediate moderation on it um, to see if it can be safely uploaded. Uh, anything that basically could burst in terms of volume, but also needs to be handled immediately, 
those workloads are great for Lambdas because, again, you're not having to worry about scaling and provisioning. You just pay for it when it happens. And then the like individual function architecture really works well for building any sort of like a pipelined system. So whether you're processing data, um, you're processing incoming messages, building queues to run various jobs, like any of those things lend themselves really well. Uh, they lend themselves really well to be extracted out of your monolith. And then all of the cloud providers have re- are adding a lot of uh, ML APIs. So anything that uh, needs like event-based machine learning work. So we I use the image moderation example, like user uploads an image, you need to do some sort of a test to see if it's like inappropriate or not. That's like an ML event. Um, if you're checking for language, uh, you know any sort of ML event is pretty good because again, you can have a single function that makes a call to the ML API, does something on that specific task, and then moves on. And it's uh, event based; it can be bursty, and it it lends itself really well to this. And then those are sort of technical examples. But then um, we talked about the whole idea of like the makeup or the skill set of the team having to change. And, you know, you're going to have real world limitations to just like changing your whole team's skill set. And so what we've seen work very well is if you have an existing monolith or you have a team that's building monoliths and that is going to continue to do so, a good way to build out a serverless skill set is to offload portions of functionality into uh, small serverless services. So um, examples that you know we've run across is we've built Elixir applications where the API and the majority of the functionality was in Elixir, which you still get all the benefits of the blazing performance, very low server cost. And we could essentially handle all of the IO, uh, network IO that we needed to with the Elixir app very easily on a very small server. Mm-hmm. But we had an image processing workload. Elixir is not good at CPU intensive tasks. And you also have to worry if you're running multiple uh, concurrent uh, image processing workloads that you're going to blow up your memory on your server. So we offloaded all of the uh, image processing onto Lambdas. So that took away the CPU intensive task, took away the uh, potential of excessive memory usage, and then let Elixir do what it does best, which is, uh, you know, like an API with network IO. Yep. Hey everyone, you've got Vikram here again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a rating on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, drop me a line at vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M at Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R.com. Thanks. Thanks.